This episode features depictions of murder and sexual assault that some listeners may find offensive. Listener discretion is advised, especially for children under 13. In November 1924, media mogul William Randolph Hearst sat in his East Coast mansion reading the New York Daily News gossip column, Blood Boiling. He normally wouldn't read a rival newspaper, but today's story involved his mistress, actress Marion Davies. She was in Hollywood, working on her latest film, and according to the column, she was more than enjoying her time away. The tabloid read, Charlie Chaplin continues to pay ardent attention to Marion Davies. He spent the evening dining and dancing with the fair Marion, He never took his eyes off the blonde beauty. Hearst slammed the paper down. Chaplin had a reputation. The 35-year-old actor had recently impregnated his 16-year-old girlfriend, Lita Gray. Now he seemed to be advancing on Hearst's lover. And it wouldn't have been Davies' first indiscretion. Hearst hired a private detective to spy on her while she was away in Los Angeles. According to the P.I., Chaplin wasn't the only man Marion Davies was seeing. The power-hungry Hearst saw Davies like she was one of his newspapers, like he owned her. He wouldn't stand to see her with someone else. He picked up a pen and some stationery and began writing a note to Marion. It read, You're running around with all your old bows and a lot of new ones. I know all about you. When he finished, he told an assistant to book him the earliest train out of New York. He was going to Hollywood to take care of the situation once and for all. But was it Charlie Chaplin he found in the arms of his mistress? Or movie producer Thomas Ince? And did the affair end in murder? Welcome to Unexplained Mysteries, a ParCast original. I'm your host, Molly. And I'm your host, Richard. In life, there's so much we don't know, but in this show, we don't take we don't know for an answer. Every Thursday, we investigate the greatest mysteries of history and life on Earth. You can find episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Unexplained Mysteries for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. This is our second episode on the mysterious death of pioneering movie producer Thomas Ince. He died suddenly in November 1924 after spending the weekend on a yacht owned by newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst. Last week, we explored Ince's and Hearst's backgrounds and the suspicious and varying accounts of the last days of Ince's life. 
This week, we'll look at the aftermath of Ince's death and examine the various theories about what actually happened that fateful yacht weekend. And we'll try to determine what ended the life of one of the most prolific Hollywood producers of his day. In the fall of 1924, film producer Thomas H. Ince was in the midst of a business deal with 61-year-old media mogul William Randolph Hearst. Hearst's movie company, Cosmopolitan Productions, was hoping to use Ince's studio in Culver City to shoot their films. And Ince could use the money. As part of their discussions, Hearst invited Ince to a weekend party on his yacht, the Oneida, It happened to be Ince's 44th birthday, so Hearst thought it would be a perfect occasion to celebrate. He had no idea, however, that it would be the last birthday Ince would ever have. After more than a full day of partying, Ince was forced to leave the Oneida early Monday morning. Supposedly, he was suffering from indigestion caused by champagne and salted almonds. He had a history of peptic ulcers, so both were prohibited by his doctors. He made a brief recovery. Then on Wednesday morning, November 19, 1924, he had a heart attack and died. Or so the official story goes. With so many famous and powerful figures on Hearst's yacht, Ince's death became a breeding ground for sensationalism and conspiracy theories. The story had the kind of intrigue that might have landed it on the front page of one of Hearst's papers had he not been involved. One popular account is that Thomas Ince was caught getting a little too cozy with Hearst's mistress, Marion Davies. In a fit of rage, Hearst shot Ince, who later died from the gunshot wounds. A variation of the first theory suggests that Ince was possibly mistaken for Charlie Chaplin, who was actually the one making a pass at Davies. Our second theory suggests that a drunken scuffle broke out below decks. Someone pulled out a gun and it went off. The bullet passed through the ceiling and struck Ince in his cabin above. Finally, we'll examine whether Ince was really the upstanding family man he portrayed himself as. Prior to ever boarding the Oneida, he may have sexually assaulted Davy's secretary, Abigail Kinsolving, and impregnated her. According to the third theory, when Kinsolving saw Ince again, she shot him. One version of the story purports that she was assaulted and killed him all during the course of the party. Before we dive into our specific theories, we should address one element they all have in common. Each hinges on a cover-up by William Randolph Hearst. The reasons why he buried the truth change with each theory, but we should first examine if it was possible. At the time of Ince's death, one in every four Americans got their news from a Hearst-owned media outlet. He was one of the wealthiest men in America. Today, he would be worth more than $30 billion. Not only was he rich, he controlled a pretty sizable portion of the United States economy. And the Hearst family empire has only grown since. Outlets under the Hearst umbrella today include Elle, Marie Claire, 
ESPN, Good Housekeeping, Harper's Bazaar, Cosmopolitan, Esquire, and more. Which is all to say, he was rich enough to pay for people's silence, rich enough to potentially keep Thomas Ince's wife quiet, rich enough to remove the Los Angeles Times Wednesday morning headline that allegedly read, Movie Producers Shot on Hearst's Yacht. Not to mention, he certainly had enough money to pay for a hit on anyone he thought might speak. And he was powerful enough to get away with it. But money aside, he wouldn't have needed to spend anything to get the story he wanted out to the world. You don't have to pay for the news when you are the news. The only thing he had to do was keep his story straight. But Hearst couldn't even do that. The initial reports from Hearst's own newspapers claimed that Ince wasn't on the Oneida at all. He'd been vacationing at Hearst's estate in San Simeon with his wife and kids. After becoming sick, Ince fell unconscious. Two doctors and three nurses were summoned to treat him. Then five medical personnel put him into an ambulance and took him home. That bit of fiction didn't go over well. There were too many witnesses who'd seen Ince in San Diego and aboard the Oneida. So what did Hearst supposedly do? He ceased coverage almost entirely. He tried to remove this story from the zeitgeist. In any circumstance, a successful producer like Thomas Ince having a heart attack and dying should have been newsworthy. No story at all must mean there was something that Hearst didn't want known. No story at all is certainly worthy of a conspiracy theory. In the hours after Ince's death, evidence of a cover-up mounted. A private funeral was arranged on Friday, November 21st. In attendance were Hollywood celebrities Douglas Fairbanks, Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, and of course, Marion Davies, at least three of whom had allegedly been aboard the yacht. Conspicuously missing, however, was William Randolph Hearst himself, and he made no effort to explain his absence. After the funeral, there was no burial. Instead, Ince's wife, Nell, had his remains cremated that afternoon. Various rumors abounded that there was never an official cause of death, that after Ince's death, Nell took the children and moved immediately to Europe, even that Hearst funded the trip with a trust fund to remove them from the media frenzy or to keep them quiet. However, Nell actually left for Europe a full seven months later and was left a very wealthy woman. And the Ince family were theosophists, and according to their close friend, Adela Nora Rogers St. John's had long had a plan in place to cremate. Still, something was suspicious about the whole ordeal. Hearst appeared to want to leave town quickly, too. A week after the funeral, he sent a telegram to Marion Davies saying, I better go east as soon as possible. Situation here, unsatisfactory. Whatever the unsatisfactory situation was, Hearst seemingly escaped it. But in California, people were still asking questions. As the weeks passed, the pressure began to mount. More and more voices called for an official investigation, but no one who had been on board the Oneida seemed to want to talk. And 
their silence was oddly suspicious. About a month after Inza's death, San Diego District Attorney Chester Kempley started his own investigation. He claimed that if a crime had been committed, it had happened while the yacht was in his jurisdiction. But although up to 20 guests were on the Oneida, for reasons unknown, Kempley only interviewed one passenger, Daniel Goodman. Goodman was one of Hearst's movie production managers, the same person who'd accompanied Inns to Del Mar after leaving the Oneida. Though he was licensed to, he didn't practice medicine. Instead, he worked full-time for Hearst. In his testimony, Goodman claimed that Ince was in good spirits on the ship, especially since his business meeting with Hearst went well. He allegedly ate a hearty dinner and then retired early for the night. But some things about Goodman's version of the story don't add up. It was Ince's 44th birthday, and he'd just made a lucrative deal with one of the most powerful men in America. It wasn't exactly a night to turn in early. Not to mention the rumors suggesting that everyone partied well into the night. Goodman's testimony also stated that after heading off to bed, Ince was actually up late with indigestion and suffering acute chest pain. When morning arrived, Goodman agreed to make sure Ince was taken care of and brought him safely to Del Mar. Supposedly, Ince then told him that he'd had these attacks before, but they'd always gone away. Goodman wasn't concerned, so once they were in Del Mar, he found Ince a hotel, summoned Dr. Truman A. Parker, and left the patient in the medic's capable hands. Goodman concluded his statement by saying, Mr. Ince gave no evidence of having had any liquor of any kind. My knowledge as a physician enabled me to diagnose the case as one of acute indigestion. Goodman's testimony raised many an eyebrow. There were enough rough accounts of the weekend to contradict what he was saying, especially the fact that he claimed there was no booze. To be fair, it was the prohibition, so a blatant admittal to copious drinking would have been strange. But if he was lying about that, what other parts of his story weren't true? Not to mention that a non-practicing doctor with no equipment seemed overly confident in his diagnosis. But outweighing everything else was one question. Who in the world dies from indigestion? The only other person Kempley interviewed was the nurse who accompanied Dr. Parker to the hotel in Del Mar, Jessie Howard. And her testimony contradicted Goodman's. She claimed that Ince admitted to drinking heavily the night before. As for whether he'd been murdered, she denied seeing any bullet hole on Ince's body which may have been because there wasn't one. Or... Or that was the one detail that Hearst had earlier made sure was corroborated. The fact that Ince wasn't shot would take priority over the fact that they were drinking in international waters. But the inconsistencies didn't seem to concern D.A. Kempley. He closed the case, stating... People interested in Ince's sudden death have continued to come to me with persistent reports, and in order to satisfy them, I conducted an investigation. But after questioning the doctor and nurse who attended Mr. Ince at Del Mar, I am satisfied his death 
was from ordinary causes. California journalist C.F. Adelsberger summed up public response to the findings when he wrote, a district attorney who passes up the matter because he sees no reason to investigate is the best agent Hearst could employ in this country. Hearst appears to have had something to hide and the ability to hide it. But what was he hiding? Coming up, did William Randolph Hearst shoot Thomas Ince in a jealous rage? Now back to the story. Rumors that 44-year-old Thomas Ince died of unnatural means began immediately after his death in November 1924. The first and most enduring of all theories is that 61-year-old William Randolph Hearst shot Ince after finding the producer with his mistress, Marion Davies. According to sources close to Hearst, he owned a revolver encrusted with diamonds. He kept it on his yacht and occasionally took it out to impress a crowd or to practice his aim on seagulls. But the revolver wasn't the only potential murder weapon. There were other guns on board. One Oneida stairway led to the upper deck, and at its foot was a large display case. Inside, an enormous collection of firearms, which meant Hearst at least had a weapon with which to shoot Ince if he was suitably motivated, and his incentive may have been jealousy. Hearst was known to be deeply in love with his much younger mistress, Marion Davies, Some might even say obsessed. And he was possessive. As a Hollywood starlet, she got plenty of attention from suitors, but that never sat well with Hearst. As the story goes, he allegedly found Ince and Marion embracing at the door to her room. Perhaps it was just an innocent hug, but Hearst didn't wait to find out. He grabbed a gun from the nearby case and confronted the pair. An argument ensued, then Hearst raised the firearm and pulled the trigger. In this version of the story, Ince collapsed to the ground, bleeding from a head wound. He either died instantly or within minutes. That would mean that Ince's travels to Del Mar, his visits from Dr. Parker and Nurse Howard, and his journey home to Los Angeles were all just theater a carefully constructed act to ensure that his death wasn't linked to Hearst. That would be one explanation for why Ince wasn't taken to the hospital, but carrying Ince's dead body all that way would be gruesome and difficult. As for whether or not Ince took an interest in Davies, she later laughed at the notion that he might have made a pass at her. She stated... Ince would have had to have had a death wish to give me a wink on a yacht, which has as much space and privacy as a barrel. I could still recognize it when a man gave me the eye, and Tom Ince didn't. But even as she denied the events, she confirms a critical component of our theory. Any man interacting with Marion Davies would had to have had a death wish, meaning Hearst was violently protective. But perhaps it wasn't Ince that Hearst was jealous of. An even more popular iteration of this story was that Hearst's intended target was actually Charlie Chaplin. The motivations remain the same, jealousy and rage. 
but this version may have a touch more credibility, if only because we have more concrete examples of Chaplin's dalliances with women. Like Hearst, Chaplin preferred younger partners. In 1918, at 29 years old, he married his 16-year-old girlfriend, Mildred Harris. According to California's Penal Code 261.5, which was enacted in 1872, Chaplin could have been arrested for statutory rape. The couple's celebrity, however, may have prevented any legal action. This also may have been a shotgun wedding, meaning Mildred was pregnant at the altar. But the exact timeline of events isn't clear. Either way, Mildred gave birth to their child 10 months later in July 1919. Then, only three days after he was born, their son passed away. In April 1920, the couple divorced. Chaplin later wrote in his autobiography that they were irreconcilably mismatched. In 1924, history repeated itself. 35-year-old Chaplin impregnated his 16-year-old girlfriend, Lita Gray. He went on to marry Gray, divorce her, and remarry twice more. Needless to say, he had a reputation. One that might scare Hearst if the 27-year-old Davies and 35-year-old Chaplin ever met. And that past summer, they had. Davies was starring in the silent drama Xander the Great. Hollywood gossip columns reported that Charlie Chaplin visited her nearly every day on the set. Naturally, Hearst found out. But apparently, that didn't stop their blossoming romance. According to the rumor mill at the film studio, the guard at the front gate would alert Marion if Hearst ever showed up unexpectedly. That way, Chaplin could sneak out through the rear door unseen. It wouldn't be too far-fetched to imagine that Hearst invited Chaplin on the Oneida that weekend, not because he liked him, but to catch the pair red-handed. As the story goes, Thomas Ince awoke in the middle of the night with indigestion. He went down to the galley to find something to soothe his upset stomach. When he arrived, Marion was having a drink. The two stood close, casually talking in dim light. When Hearst entered, he believed he'd found the evidence he was looking for. He mistook Ince for Chaplin, pulled out his diamond-studded revolver, and fired. Only afterward did he realize that he'd just shot his new business partner. Hearst allegedly quickly went into cover-up mode. He called upon his loyal production manager, Daniel Goodman, to help. Marion Davies wouldn't dare turn him in, but he needed more than her silence. He needed everyone on board to cooperate. Using his industry influence as leverage, he swore them all to secrecy. He paid nurse Jesse Howard for a medical alibi and paid District Attorney Chester Kempley to close the case. As for Nell Ince, in order to secure her silence, Hearst opened his pocketbook. He took care of Nell and her children for the rest of their lives. There was only one other person he needed to worry about, a woman named Luella Parsons. She was a gossip columnist who was supposedly aboard the Oneida. Ince's murder could be a career-defining story for the reporter. However, 
Hearst had the power to make her a star by just picking up a phone, and that's exactly what he did. Following Ince's death, Hearst brought Parsons to California and proceeded to syndicate her columns in his papers across the country. She became one of the most famous Hollywood reporters and gossip columnists in the United States. Her articles were printed in more than 400 newspapers nationwide. She eventually became known as the First Lady of Hollywood. In her biography years later, Parsons denied that she was aboard the Oneida the weekend that Thomas Ince died. She insisted she was home in New York, but some eyewitness accounts placed her on the yacht. Actress Vera Burnett claims that she specifically saw Luella Parsons come to the studio where Davies' film Xander the Great was shooting. Parsons was accompanied by Charlie Chaplin. The two picked up Davies and headed off to board the Oneida. However, Parsons' presence, or lack thereof, doesn't settle the matter one way or the other. And there are some holes in the theory that Hearst mistakenly shot Ince. Biographer Joyce Milton noted that Hearst and Chaplin remained friends for years after Ince's death. So it seems rather unlikely that Hearst would have ever tried to kill Chaplin, even if Ince happened to take the bullet for him. Marion Davies also denied every part of this narrative. She even claimed that Hearst never kept any firearms on the yacht. But there are numerous eyewitness accounts of a gun cabinet and of Hearst shooting at seagulls. But maybe it wasn't Hearst that shot Ince. Perhaps Ince was accidentally hit during a drunken altercation. This theory has several iterations. The most common goes as follows. Chaplin and several other guests stayed up late in the ship's galley, drinking. Chaplin, in particular, was trying to drown his sorrows. He didn't want to marry Lita Gray, the 16-year-old he'd impregnated. He'd allegedly tried to buy her off with the equivalent of roughly $300,000, but she and her parents refused. They insisted on a wedding. Chaplin was distraught. On the one hand, he wanted to stay single and avoid another sham marriage. On the other, if word got out about their child out of wedlock, it could ruin his career and reputation. He would later state that he was almost suicidal about the situation. According to Chaplin's biographer, Joyce Milton, he owned a gun and was known to use it in jest. The silent film star would often pull out his weapon and melodramatically threaten to kill himself. That may be precisely what happened aboard the Oneida. While drunk and wallowing in self-pity, Chaplin brought out his firearm and put the barrel to his temple. Unsure whether he was joking or not, the other guests intervened, and in the ensuing struggle, it went off. Someone either accidentally pulled the trigger or the firearm fell to the ground and discharged. In either case, a bullet went through the ceiling and struck Ince in the head. He collapsed to the ground as blood splattered the walls of his cabin. He was dead on impact, just a victim of circumstance, in the wrong place at the wrong time. But Hearst still covered up the incident because he didn't want the scandal of a fatality on his luxury yacht. 
But it feels like a lot of effort to hide a perfectly explainable accident. Given the sheer scope of the cover-up conspiracy, many believe that something nefarious led to Thomas Ince's death. And maybe he brought it on himself. The shooting wasn't murder, but justifiable payback. Coming up, we'll explore whether Thomas Ince was the real villain of this story. Now, back to the story. Officially, in November 1924, 44-year-old movie producer Thomas Ince died of a heart attack after attending a party on 61-year-old William Randolph Hearst's yacht, the Oneida. We've already looked at two alternate theories that suggest that something much more diabolical occurred. Our final hypothesis is all about revenge. Marion Davies' secretary, Abigail Kinsolving, was on board, and she was pregnant with Thomas Ince's child, a child conceived by rape. There are some variations on when the crime happened. But at some point, Abigail Kinsolving apparently told police that Ince had sexually assaulted her and that she had the bruises to prove it. Though she denied being involved in Ince's death, it naturally led to some questions. If Ince was shot, did Kinsolving pull the trigger? Could it have been an act of retribution? There is evidence to suggest that Thomas Ince wasn't exactly the family man that he touted himself to be. Some claim that he even boarded the Oneida with his alleged mistress, actress Margaret Livingston. Livingston had starred in several of Ince's films. Just how close they were, however, has never been confirmed. And most likely, their relationship was only a fiction created for Peter Bogdanovich's fictionalized movie version of the crime, The Cat's Meow. What has been confirmed is that Abigail Kinsolving gave birth to a child just months after the weekend on the Oneida. Some claimed it was Ince's, but the timeline was too short for her to have gotten pregnant on board the ship. So the conception must have happened earlier. Others claim that the father was someone else entirely and that Kinsolving blamed the pregnancy on Ince because she was ashamed of having a child out of wedlock. An assault would take the blame off of her and Ince, already dead, was an easy scapegoat. Another iteration of the Kinsolving theory suggests that she had a consensual relationship with Ince. She was his mistress. And when she found him on the yacht with his other alleged mistress, Margaret Livingston, she fired. If police knew about the rumors surrounding kinsolving, they didn't seem to take them seriously. There's no evidence to suggest that anyone ever investigated the assault allegations. But there is a shroud of mystery surrounding the events after kinsolving's child was born. Not long after giving birth, Kinsolving died in a mysterious single-car accident. And the accident happened on Hearst's estate in San Simeon. Two of his bodyguards allegedly found her, and there was a suicide note in the vehicle. As far as we can tell, no one knows what the note said, but supposedly it was written in two different handwritings. 
Kinsolving's infant daughter, Louise, was sent to an orphanage where she was financially supported by none other than Marion Davies, Hearst's mistress. Which raises the question, did Hearst order Kinsolving's death? His guards found her shortly after the car accident, and Hearst's estate was more than 40,000 acres. How did they know where to find her? And what details were they encouraged to hide? And why would Hearst want Kinsolving dead? Maybe because she was a loose cannon willing to turn herself in after killing Ince, or as revenge for murdering his future business partner. But it seems more logical to assume that Hearst had Kinsolving eliminated because he had killed Ince, the father of her child, and she knew about it. The biggest problem with this narrative, however, is that there is seemingly no mention of the alleged assault until 1996, when Hearst's granddaughter, Patricia Campbell Hearst, published the fictional book Murder at San Simeon. So there's a distinct possibility that the entire theory around Abigail Kinsolving sprang out of this novel. Numerous sources published since 1996 have mentioned the Kinsolving rumor, but none before. We've also been unable to verify that anyone with this name ever worked for Marion Davies. The American literary critic magazine, Kirkus Reviews, wrote, Abigail Kinsolving, secretary to Marion Davies, is as fictional as the protagonist herself. And we would have to agree. If Abigail Kinsolving was a real historical figure, we can't find her. And if she didn't exist, we're left wondering, why hide the truth about Thomas Ince's death? The lies printed in Hearst's papers suggest a cover-up, but the counter-arguments to our theories are pretty convincing as well. If Hearst were conspiring to hide evidence of a murder, in the words of historian Brian Taves, one would have to assume that Hearst was powerful enough to seal the lips of not only his yacht crew, but two nurses, the authorities of several counties, the opposition press, Ince's wife, and Ince's two brothers. It would have been a monumental task. Hearst may have been capable of such a thing, but it's hard to imagine he'd pull it off without someone talking. But what if the newspaper mogul covered up not a murder, but an unintentional but fatal misfire? Author Joyce Milton, in her book Tramp, The Life of Charlie Chaplin, admits that Charlie's gun accidentally going off is all too plausible. But she argues that if Ince was shot by accident, it likely wouldn't have been a mortal injury. It would have been incredibly unfortunate luck for a loose bullet to shatter the ceiling and hit Ince in the skull with enough force to kill him. In addition, in 1969, longtime Hearst journalist Adela Rogers St. John's quoted Nell Ince in an article saying, Do you think I would have done nothing if I even suspected that my husband had been the victim of foul play? Granted, those words might have been an attempt to deflect suspicion, especially if she'd been accepting Hearst's bribes. But Nell hasn't been the only Ince to speak out. His granddaughter, Nancy Ince Probert, went on record in 1998. She said, 
My father told me there was absolutely nothing wrong. No injuries, no bullet holes of any kind. Not to mention there's a signed affidavit from Ince's studio manager saying that his body had been inspected by officials before cremation, as is required by law. Which should confirm that Ince really did die of a heart attack. But then why did Hearst's papers lie about his death? What was there to cover up? There's one more theory that we could look into, but it's not as popular as the rest. Perhaps because it's not as sensational. In 1924, Hearst was under investigation by the Department of Justice for bootlegging. It was the middle of Prohibition, and the Department of Justice had documents alleging that one of his boats had been running booze along the coast of California. Ince had been drinking before he died, and the last thing Hearst wanted was for anyone to pay attention to the Oneida's alcohol service. So he formulated a series of lies to deflect from the real story. If he was just twisting the narrative so that Ince's death wasn't traced back to alcohol, that's a much easier task than getting away with murder. He would have just had to pay off some press representatives. And maybe that's what happened. In the words of Nell Ince, I do hope for the sake of my children and my beloved grandchildren, no such belief in such a weird and silly story will continue down into the generations. Money talks, power talks, rumors die hard. But Ince did incredible things for the movie industry, shaping the entertainment we grew up on and love today. Rather than spurious conspiracy theories, we think that should be his legacy. Thanks again for tuning in to Unexplained Mysteries. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode. For information on Ince, amongst the many sources we used, we found Thomas Ince, Hollywood's independent pioneer by Brian Taves, and Tramp, The Life of Charlie Chaplin by Joyce Milton, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unexplained Mysteries and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Unexplained Mysteries, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Unexplained Mysteries on Spotify, just open the app and type Unexplained Mysteries in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. See you next Thursday. And remember, never take we don't know for an answer. Unexplained Mysteries was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Joel Stein. This episode of Unexplained Mysteries was written by Scott Christmas, with writing assistance by Drew Cole and stars Molly Brandenburg and Richard Rossner. Mm-hmm.